0: This is New Books in Science Fiction. I'm your host, Rob Wolf, author of The Alternate Universe, and today is the It's Raining Men edition. (laughs) Today, I'm thrilled to be talking with Maggie Shen King about her debut novel, An Excess Male*, which made the James Tiptree Jr. Literary Award honor list and has also been nominated for a Lambda Literary Award. The ceremony announcing the Lambda Award winners is actually happening tonight, so there's a bit of suspense in the air. And An Excess Mail has also shown up on lots of recommended reading lists, including Barnes & Nobles and the Washington Post lists of the best science fiction and fantasy novels of 2017. Maggie Shen King is on Skype with me now from her home in the San Francisco Bay Area. Hey, Maggie, thanks for coming on the show.
1: Hi, Rob. Very nice talking to you.
0: How are things in the Bay Area tonight?
1: Oh, not too bad. Warriors are doing good. <laughs> That's the big thing around town over here.
0: Glad to hear it. I'm glad the Warriors are doing well and that you're doing well. An Excess Mail starts with a scene that throws readers right into the central drama of the book and sets up what is probably the key feature of the world you've created. So, So in this scene, the four main protagonists of the story are all having a meal together. But it's so much more than an ordinary meal. Can you tell our listeners what's going on in this scene?
1: The book opens uh, with a, a scene at a restaurant with a matchmaker, and um, you're hearing from the point of view of of the excess male or the man who wants to um, have a bride, you know, meet meet his potential bride. But it's not your usual matchmaking uh, lunch because. Um, you know, we're in near future China in the aftermath of the one-child policy, and the 30 million excess men, men that uh, the policy has created uh, because of um, the Chinese cultural preference for sons. Um, so it's it's a great big competition um, to to win a wife, um, and the government has tried to help the situation by creating advanced families um which which means um families where there's a wife and multiple husbands so the the government has appealed to its families to to demonstrate patriotism by taking on additional husbands and so we open with Wei Guo who is who is our first point of view character and he's basically at a you know matchmaking interview but it's not with the wife and the potential parent and her parents but it's with um the bride and her Two husbands, um, and he is accompanied by his two fathers, and um, and it's all being brokered by by a matchmaker. So you know the the story slowly unfolds, and 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 you know you you, you get you hear, you you see you know more than one you know the, the bride has more than one, is already married and has a child and has two husbands, and um, and and you're just observing all of this through uh, Li Guo's point of view.
0: And the husbands also happen to be brothers, which adds another layer, I think, of complication, yes. I would think, to any family.
1: With, with husbands from different families, you, you feel like there will be some kind of competition going on, you know, everybody trying to gain the upper hand. But then this is a stranger situation where the, the two husbands are, are, are brothers and they're family helped them win this bride at an auction she is the daughter of daughter breeders people who've um, instead of having sons decided to game the system and they're gamblers and so they've had you know a a number of daughters and paid the penalties for them and slowly um, started auctioning them off and she was actually one of the highest auctions in town and it was to to a family with two brothers and as the story unfolds, you'll find out that there, there's a secret in there within that family. And um, there's a reason the parents wanted to pair the brothers so that you know they'll watch out for each other um, o- o- over their lifetime and help each other out um, within this marriage. And so the dynamics of, of a brother situation um, comes into play. And so this polyandrous situation uh, it actually, has some historical basis in China. It um, in, in the 18th century, it, w- it was practiced. Um, if you you know think about it on the on the wealthier end of the spectrum, the 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 emperors and the wealthy men had concubines and second wives, and it was um, kind of looked up upon. Uh, it's it's the the benefits of of that kind of prosperity in their in their social position, but um, on the really poor end of the spectrum, especially in small rural villages, um, women were asked to take on, um, multiple se- second husbands usually when, for example, a farm needed extra labor and they could not afford it, or they didn't want to divide up a piece of land uh, among brothers, for example, then, you know, they would ask the woman to have two husbands. Um, and those situations were often frowned upon. And so, um, you know, the the women were called upon to do this for economic reasons. So yeah, the story situation actually had some, some uh, historical precedent.
0: And the one child policy is something that started, I know, in 1979. And is it still actually going on in China? Or is it something they have phased out?
1: So the one child policy um, came on in 1979, it was initially supposed to be a one generation fix. And it was Enacted to um, address the, popul- the, the problem of, of overpopulation, um, they wanted to make sure the country is able to feed its people and also sustain the kind of per capita growth that it envisioned. And so, um, you know, they they called in scientists and experts and actually had used a. Uh, a ballistic expert who had studied um, population growth in Russia to devise this policy, and the the plan was to get China to a population of 700 million. Um, But this one-generation fix went on for nearly 40 years. Um, They started phasing it out about two years ago. Um, It became the two-child policy. Um, But what they've discovered is, you know, as China goes the way of all, you know, becoming a first world country with very well-educated populace, um, people are less inclined to have children. And they've also kind of, you know, trained everybody to this one-child mindset that they're finding that um, they're going to have problems with population replacement, like, like all the first world countries. And so I think I heard recently that they've decided to... Um, and and the two child policy at the end, at the end of this year, so you know people will be free to, you know, have have the number of children that they desire.
0: And how did you decide to write a story about polyandry, starting with the one child policy? It certainly seems like there's a certain logic to the culture moving in that direction, or the government coming to that solution when there's so many excess men. But can you share some of your Storytelling inspiration. How you decided to go in that direction with your story, and and for those who don't know, I didn't know myself that polyandry means a woman who has multiple husbands. So I learned something. Increased my vocabulary.
1: (laughs) So this story idea came to me about five years ago from the morning newspaper. Um, I read an article about you know the one child policy and the gender imbalance that resulted. um, because of, you know, China's preference for sons, um, the, you know, sons, having sons was a filial duty for, for Chinese people, you know, and, and so, you know, having the one-child policy, when you're only allowed to have one son, then everyone's schemed and, you know, tr- you know, try their best to have a son, right? And so it created this massive gender imbalance, um. I think the the normal birth ratio is something like 105 boys born to every 100 girls, and in the poorest, uh, more rural, more, most traditional parts of China, the the ratio got as bad as 130 to, to 100. And so when you multiply that out into a population, you know, of a billion people, you have a massive problem on your hands. Um, and and the number is something like 30 million. So which is roughly the population of Canada. It's a huge problem. And so, um, you know, I was absolutely intrigued by that idea. And um, the, the statistics, like, by the year 2030, 25% or a quarter of the men over the age of 35 will not be able to find a wife, you know, just mathematically impossible. And the problem actually is worse than, you know, that 30 million because all the excess, most of the excess male um, in China are in rural China. Um, they're usually less, less educated, um, on the bottom of socioeconomic, um, stratum. Um, and most of the unmarried women in China live in the big cities and they're usually the most well-educated, uh, the most, the highest achieving business people. And so, you know, those two population will never come together because they're, you know, inherently incompatible. And so, you know, it's, the, it's 30 million, but it's worse than 30 million. And so I was so intrigued by the idea. And, you know, when you have 30 million men at the prime of their lives, you know, testosterone-fueled, um, you have a society that's more prone to aggression and violence and crime and, you know, or, you know, if you go to the other end, dissatisfaction and possibly depression, it's a very, very volatile mix for a society. And, um, you know, this one-child policy created so many unintended consequences that, you know, I I just thought it was a wonderful um, premise for for a story, for a novel. And, you know, the the, the one-child policy became the longest lasting and, and the largest scaled social engineering experiment of all time. And I thought, you know, there's,
0: Gotta be a story there. And did you do any research about polygamy or cultures where polygamy is condoned? And and if you did, did you find anything that surprised you?
1: No, I didn't do like polygamy research, but I did read. You know, it's a very current issue, so I read a lot of articles and newspaper and magazine um, pieces on on the idea. And um, I, I thought of solving the problem like a mathematical equation. If you you can import more women, foreign women, that's one angle, one way to go at it. And that creates, you know, a society that's very mixed culturally. And, um, you know, there's definitely a story there. Or you can export um, some of your men. And that's a very sad story. You know, all these only children, only sons um, leaving the country, leaving their family. Or, you know, my perverse brain thought, well, what if you ask women to take on Additional husbands, you know, I thought that would be a really provocative way to talk about how China, in favoring their sons, actually achieved, you know the opposite and a very devastating effect. And I had read that there was a professor in China who actually proposed this idea on social media and then just got crucified. <laughs> You know got uh, hate mail, all kinds of like, you know this is immoral. never would happen. You know, how dare you suggest this kind of a solution. yeah, I, I'm hoping not to get that <laughs> that reaction by by acknowledging it that the, someone else already had that problem
0: in your story, interestingly, people don't seem to be any more happy or unhappy, I think, than they are in traditional two-person marriages. I mean, people definitely have problems and people may cheat or people may quarrel and have resentments, but they also seem to have a lot of love and understanding. And I found that fascinating that people seem to have, in some ways, adapted and have found a way to function within this new social order.
1: You know, growing up, we saw a lot of, like, soap broth- I grew up in Taiwan. So, you know, there were, there were lots of soap opera on TV about, you know, these emperors who had multiple concubines. And um, it was always, you know, high-level palace intrigue, everybody trying to, you know, vie for position. And the kids would grew up to be very, you know, politically astute, you know, very good at maneuvering. Uh, within that kind of a structure, and it was you know there 's a, a lot of conflict in these in these large, large um, extended families right and I was interested in that dynamic, but I was also interested in um, writing a very human, very family oriented story about um, people making the best of their situations and coming together, discovering what a true family is, especially under extreme pressure. And, and living under this authoritarian government, and what what would happen if um you know they were pre- if they were threatened um and they, they they come together yeah
0: let's talk a little about Wei Guo or Li Wei Guo who is the young relatively young I guess he's actually in his forties mm-hmm. uh, the excess male who is seeking and courting this family of Mei Ling who has two husbands already and he would be the third husband. And Mei Ling's family has a few obstacles that interfere with the potential they have to reach, you know, real happiness. And they really have to do with husband one and husband two, the brothers that we had spoken about before. And not to take the whole plot apart, but maybe we could talk a little bit about husband one, who. Is attracted to men, and the other husband has uh, different challenges. And I, and I imagine a lot of readers might be surprised that Wei Guo isn't immediately turned off by these challenges. Although it's interesting, he only finds out about them after a period of time in which he's already got to know them. Right. But he is able to see past or through them, and or so it so without going through the whole story. He certainly is willing to make the effort right. to pursue mailing and some of that might even be a little self-serving because you know if one of the husbands is gay that means he's got more of the wife for himself I guess <laughs> but but he's an interesting character that he is able to do that
1: so he's definitely a people pleaser and desperate I think because he's in his 40s doesn't have a lot of money he's finally saved up enough dowry to enter marriage at this lowest round um, and, and he, he does make a connection with mailing and he comes to like husband one before he, he, he realizes that, uh, husband one is gay. Um, and husband one is a very, uh, family oriented, but he does have the secret that he, um, has a secret life on the side. And I think that's played out also in china where um, homosexuality still carries a great deal of stigma and you know probably 90 percent of of homosexual men carry on their filial duty do marry and then um have have a child and then just live another entire life on the side and so han is absolutely devoted to his family and to his child um and he loves mailing their they're their soulmates they're very good friends but he just does not want to have physical relations with her which which frustrates her but he is um, a charming character and a family man and um, and he, he 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 makes a connection uh with we and the husband too is on the on the autism spectrum he's a very smart he's probably you know, would be classified asperger's he's a very good um, engineer a, a software engineer and um, but he's not not terribly interested in mailing or the baby he's in this marriage because his parents wanted him to be in in a family to have the emotional support of his family um, to be with his brother who will watch out for him over over their lifetime he also loves his brother respects him. But in a way, he'd rather be alone and live by himself. So he's somewhat eager to get out of the marriage. And so he's doing his very best to also help Wu Wei Guo. And um, so Wei Guo sees that good side of, of, of um, husband number two. And, and he also comes from um, an advanced family. He's seen the kind of dynamics that go on between the two husbands. Um, his mother passed away, and there's his two fathers and him are still living together under one roof. And his his two fathers have become good, lifelong companions. And so he has that model, and, and he wants um, that kind of family where they're supportive of each, of each other. And so he's, um, you know, once he learns that husband one is gay, and uh, which is frowned upon, in the society, they they classified um, homosexuals as willfully sterile, and because China has so many men, they're almost disposable to this authoritarian government. And so, you know, they they'd rather not have homosexuals raising children and and teaching them that other way of life. And so, being willfully sterile in a marriage is is, um, is frowned upon in the society. And so. Wait, well, once he realizes this, though, likes Han enough and sees the advantage of being in a marriage where one of the husbands is, isn't is interested in physical relations with, with the wife. He, he's you know, kind of sees the upside of that relationship. And so he's desperate enough and he likes these people enough to to take to gamble on them.
0: Homosexuality, you think would continue to be frowned upon in the same way, because I was thinking that with all the excess men, it was a great way to siphon off some of the extra males.
1: Yes, you, you would think, but um, the, my, my thinking is that um, China is a very proud country. Authoritarian ch- China um, has a certain image of what masculinity is, and masculinity, you know, for them... Uh, would not be a homosexual man in in this particular world, uh, where you have 30 million excess men who have the possibility to create a lot of trouble for the society. And so they establish this very rigid um, society where certain things are acceptable. And if you want to go outside those lines, these are the rules that you would need to follow.
0: Well, you write very movingly about Mei Ling's love for Han and vice versa. And it reminds me, as a gay man myself, of some of my relationships with women when I was in college, especially, (laughs) you know, and of a generation where gay marriage didn't exist and there felt like there were a lot more obstacles. And that poignant desire for companionship and love of someone, but missing the sexual desire, I thought you captured very spot on.
1: Oh, good. I'm glad to hear that. (laughs) I think they do fundamentally have a very sound relationship. Um, you know, Mailing married him when she was 16. Uh, she came from a family that prized her mainly for her looks, uh, for what she can bring to the family coffers. She and her sisters weren't valued as, as true human beings for, for their you know, inherent, uh, inherent goodness. And so when she joined Han's family he was able to see her as a whole human being um, to love her for who she is and was and encourage her to um, stand up for herself and so um, with with him she found a sort of home and emotional shelter that she'd never had before and um, so they became you know very very good friends and and, um, they didn't have sex right away, because Han wasn't interested, but also she thought because he was a true gentleman and and um and so they they became friends first, and he was kind of the her shelter against his mother, who was a, a bit of a controlling mother in law and so she felt protected and loved by him, and so um they're best friends, but he's just not interested in having sex with her. Which um, you know it, it is problematic when you're trying to have a have a true marriage.
0: Well, I don't envy Wei Guo's need to court three people instead of one, because <laughs> <laughs> he has to. He basically approaches courtship exactly the way you'd expect someone who is courting one person to do it. He he tries to get to know his mates and do fun things with them and bring them gifts. But he has three different people that he has to approach in different ways and get to know. Mm -hmm. And it's impressive (laughs) that he has the energy and the desire to do it.
1: Plus he has the court, the baby too, right? That's right. There's
0: a toddler (laughs) there too. And he actually uh, excels where the parents themselves don't seem to be quite as adept at handling a very rambunctious and energetic toddler.
1: Mm -hmm. So he's a personal trainer by profession, and um, kind of a rambunctious child himself growing up. And so, the the child, the toddler in the family, is a little bit ADD. You know, definitely a little bit oppositional, and probably a lot like Wigwa growing up. And so, um, you know, the first time mother has a little bit of a hard time with with the child. Husband one's very good with him, but husband two, who's on the autism spectrum, is just confounded by this kid. And and, and Wei Guo was able to, to, to come in and um, know what this child needs and, and take care of him.
0: Well, for a book that could be classified really as dystopian, there's an unusual amount of love in it and an appreciation of, of family life. And as you've said, you know, it's not just romantic love, but there's the love between Wei Guo's two dads, which is a non-sexual love, but clearly very intimate. And there's the two brothers and there's the non-sexual relationship between Mei Ling and Han. It's quite a complex tapestry of love and filled with a lot of small details about family life. And at the very beginning of our conversation, you did say that you wanted to write a story about family life. And that's, that's evident.
1: Oh, good. I'm glad to hear it. Um, I started out uh, writing a marriage plot, you know, the story of a man uh, trying to join a family. Um, but, you know, with a little bit of a twist with a male protagonist at its center and a government that's called upon families to demonstrate patriotism by taking on additional husbands. My, I was just concerned with whether or not they would marry at the end. And, you know, I work with a writing group and probably 200 pages into it, they were saying, you know, the story kept getting darker and darker because because I'm asking everybody to take this great leap of the imagination with me. Um, with the polyandrous marriage, um, I was saying as true to as, as I can to China, its current politics, its current attitudes on mental illness and homosexuality and and um, opposition, all that stuff. Um, my, my writing group was saying, you know, I think we think you're writing a dystopian novel. And I was, you know, as surprised as, as anyone and uh, had to, like, you know, <laughs> backtrack a little bit and really figure out you know reread some of the I mean I'd read some of the classics but you know reread them and really study a little bit about how to write that kind of a book and so um, I kind of backed into the genre um, somewhat organically you know by by telling the kind of story that I wanted to tell ended up being um, a lot more than a, a marriage tale.
0: So we see how the government works initially just around the rules of the family and the fact that they are telling people they can and should have two and then three husbands. But Wei Guo also offers us another way to look at this authoritarian regime through something he does in his spare time, which are called the strategic games, which are for these excess men to do a kind of wilderness military training and they have fun and and let off extra energy and have companionship with each other. But you set up early on in the book uh, a tension when Wei Guo and his fellow generals are required to submit names of 5% of their members to uh, submit to psychiatric evaluations, which he knows will probably ruin their lives. And so... He's hesitant to do it and, in fact, decides to resist, and that has some serious consequences. So that that adds a whole nother layer of suspense to the book and another window into this world, I guess, to remind us, even though there's a lot of love, as we've already spoken about, there is also a lot of danger and uh, oppression as well.
1: We Wiggle plays this thing called strategic games, which... Works on multiple levels for me. For the men who play in this game, it's it's um, simulated war games, but there are no guns, and they go into parklands and fight with lasers. It, it's kind of like laser tag, and so they think of it as wilderness training exercise. They're out in the great outdoors having some fun together, um, and it's also a great way for excess males to build community and be with each other, and help each other through other problems in their lives, and support each other. So, but, but for the average citizen though, um, the strategic games feels a little bit threatening because every once in a while something goes wrong, and there's a fight, or somebody accidentally gets killed, or um, you know they're out there and playing these war games which feel a little bit violent, but from the government's point of view, it's very threatening because it's it's a way for excess men to organize. Um, and even though they call it wilderness training, it, it's war games and it's a way for them to organize and come together. And so when the government, um, after the incident where um, a number of men got killed uh, playing war games, they decided to ask all the teams to submit Five percent of their members which is kind of the national average for mental problematic mental illness to submit five percent of the their people for mental evaluation and when when that order came down and uh, Wei Guo and his counterparts decide to resist that becomes very problematic for an authoritarian government because um uh, a challenge of this sort, organized revolt, is absolutely unacceptable. And when they go on to really resist and refuse to submit names, then consequences ensue. Um, and that's where um, the, the story comes to a climax in the book.
0: And we won't ruin that for people, so I won't. Wait, let's not say any more. You grew up in Taiwan and attended both Chinese and American schools before moving to Seattle at the age of 16. And people often say that you should write what you know. And I, <laughs> I always think immigrants know so much more than non-immigrants because they're basically fluent in two cultures, and two languages, and two worlds, multiple languages, perhaps. I was wondering when you contemplated writing this book, which is your first novel, did you pause and wonder, oh gosh, which world should I set it in or should I blend it? Or obviously, especially with science fiction, you could set it on another planet. And maybe it's a false dichotomy. But I was just wondering, was the decision quick and easy about the setting? I'll go. I'll set it in China, or uh, did it take a lot of mulling? And I'll note, too, that you set it in mainland China, although you grew up in Taiwan.
1: I tend to like to write a lot about uh... Taiwan and China, I don't know why. I think it's probably because I understand that world to an extent and I feel like I can um, make sense of it for the Western audience. And my, you know, my writing teachers always say, write something original and fresh, um, something no one's ever heard of before. And when you write about another culture, there's just so many interesting angles into the way people think, for example, when you talk about, you know, in, in the opening chapter, double X is, is, is the big man. And, um, you know, most Western people would say, oh, he's really fat you know, he's a fat slob with a big gut. But, you know, Chinese people look at a big man and they think they're prosperously sized, that um, they come from wealth and a good family and because only People who have the money to afford lots of food can get to that kind of size. And so it's not necessarily a bad thing um, from another culture. And there's so many little things like that um, when, when you write about other cultures that it's almost easier for me to just write about that other side of the world. And so when I heard this story, absolutely um, did not even contemplate setting it in, in, in the U.S., <laughs> Um, I like writing about that the other side of the world
0: well thank you for sharing your story with us An Excess Mail and thank you so much for coming on the show today
1: it's my pleasure it was very fun talking to you Rob
0: I've been talking with Maggie Shen King about her debut novel An Excess Mail For more interviews, subscribe to New Books and Science Fiction on your favorite podcasting app or visit newbooksnetwork.com and click on the Science Fiction Show link. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron of quivernyc.com. The editor-in-chief of the New Books Network is Marshall Poe, and the editor is Leanne Wilson. Please consider leaving a review if you like what you've heard here. And again, I'm Rob Wolf, author of The Alternate Universe. Thank you so much for dropping by.